opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard who left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were all right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position. Hard the left, the hard 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 left, 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 hard left, hard left, left, hard 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 left, talking about a kind of strong hawkish atlanticist foreign policy which i believe leads us to where we were abruptly interrupted last time nia griffith jeremy corbyn's shadow defense secretary for probably most of the time that he was labor leader i think we explained in the bit but we actually did record what what the deal was with her that she kind of suddenly converted to this like uh, ultra right wing sort of foreign policy. I've been I've been told that she wasn't like that left wing before she got given the position. She was always kind of soft left, but she was a member of CND. Someone said that she went. Uh, I think she turned up to a like stop the war event on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, but, so there you go. She was like affiliated with Stop the War and CND before she became Shadow Defense Secretary. But someone told me that she turned up to do a speech at a no intervention in Syria stop the war event and kind of like just like did this shitty both sides thing that was literally the worst speech I'd ever heard so <laughs> so she was never that radical but she was seen as like one of the people in the PLP who was more amenable to yeah. Corbyn's worldview on on those issues then fast forward to 2019 and she was saying that British troops who committed war crimes in Northern Ireland should not be punished should be fully exonerated and not face any consequences for committing war crimes and murdering people Fuck's sake, yeah, and your foreign policy is very serious indeed. Yeah, and we tried, we as in the left collectively, like the grassroots, and I think some like pretty major people signed it. I think even like Owen Jones signed the letter in the end, but it was basically a big petition, like a couple of thousand people at least probably signed it, mm-hmm. uh, to get Nia Griffith sacked when she said that yes. thing about Northern Ireland. Yeah, I th- yeah, I remember that now, yeah, yeah. That was, that but, did get quite a bit of traction, but then didn't really it just got blank didn't it like it's like the previously recorded bit where you're talking about how there was just no interest as to why she went from being sort of involved with cnd for years and years and years to pretty much uh u-turn in as soon as she got the job but it's mm. it's that same thing isn't it there's just no curiosity about sort of how, how and why these, these things come about and then when when people are getting criticized for positions like that and there's a bit of grassroots pushback against it it's just you know it just gets memory hold doesn't it no one in the, the press no one with any real elected platform in the party outside of the sort of left contingent can even acknowledge something like that happens because it's not even one they'd go back and go oh look what the Corbyn cult are up to now trying to get a cancer they just want to stop people noticing <laughs> even this debate about this, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's not even a story, really. Mm. I don't think that got reported on, actually, really. No, I, I can't remember it did. If, if it did, it certainly wasn't much, you know? It wasn't treated as any sort of major thing. No, which shows the priorities that, like, most journalists have or the, the people who make those editorial decisions on what gets reported on have. They just didn't consider this to be at all of an egregious position it probably made a lot of sense to them like Mm -hmm. oh you know trying to appeal to the ordinary person who thinks that british soldiers should be able to commit war crimes wherever they are in the world but you know especially against those pesky irish 
I, I think that actually that did cause a lot of anger when she, she again, I'm certain that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't share that position. She wouldn't have like conversed with Seamus Milne and been like, so Seamus, like, I'm going to say that the war criminals are good, okay? And he'd have been like, yes, Nia, go out into the media and say that. The way that Left Out portrays a relationship between Griffith and Corbyn's office uh, does not come across like there was that much kind of communication. And what does come off is what she did repeatedly flout them publicly and they didn't do anything um but what happened there basically was that the general election got called and it was unfortunately just mm-hmm. bad timing she she said her thing at a time when she was all but guaranteed impunity for it because well people's attentions would move on yeah yeah it was uh it ended up being bad timing for for any opposition to that but uh, there we go it's like there she goes again. <laughs> like Nia's out in the media saying right wing things, <laughs> but yeah, like so. This is how they originally introduced her. Unlike Corbyn, she believed in retaining the UK's independent nuclear deterrent, an awakening she experienced only after her ascension. So yeah, I'll be like fully honest because I don't think I really got to the denouement of this argument uh, in the last bit, which was uh, just like I totally think that though yes, I think there may have been some pressure from her union affiliates to take an overtly pro-nuke position and maybe she wasn't a kind of strong-willed principled politician who would stand by what she previously believed and was amenable to being pushed griffith is like definitely and i have no evidence for this but she is top of the list of people involved in some way in the corbyn project who i think were uh, security service assets uh, <laughs> now this is when i say i think i should say i suspect I speculate again this is not I wouldn't go on record and state I definitively know this to be true but I think it may potentially have something to it the other names are a couple of people involved in momentum (laughs) 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 both of whom uh took very pro-EU positions and one of whom overtly supported Keir Starmer in his leadership campaign Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> While still officially the head of momentum. Uh, again, I have no evidence there, but I just think, what kind of a person? <laughs> we should do an episode one day where we just spend about an hour just listing assets. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- those are my top three. Those are my yeah. top well, one. There's of a lot, though. There's a lot. There are a few, but like pretty much all right-wing people, you can just assume that if the intelligence yeah. services asked them to do something, they would be like so honoured and so yeah. flattered that they would do it in a heartbeat. So let's just like say the entire right are knowingly or unknowingly intelligence service assets. Yeah, the entire British economy is actually secretly predicated on GCHQ jobs monitoring us and our pals. Yeah. So there is a bit here about Griffith, basically. She planned to quit. Basically, she did the saber-rattling stuff about Russia. Went off script, so to speak. And she was going to quit after her bellicose interview and take two of her three shadow ministers with her. So that was obviously a real kind of like hotbed of the right. It's shadow defence department, which just makes you wonder how the leadership could like live with this status quo. But, um... Yeah, Fabian Hamilton was going to stay on. Uh, a CND lifer, much like Nia Griffith, <laughs> appointed mm-hmm. by Corbyn to serve as Shadow Minister for Peace. Actually, guys, it was Shadow Minister for Peace and Disarmament. Get that right. <laughs> but the weird thing about Fabian Hamilton, he seems like a nice guy and everything. He's Jewish and he kind of was fairly supportive of Corbyn over some of the accusations of anti-Semitism. And uh, like I say, he's a member of CND and has some good views on nuclear weapons and stuff. Also a long-time affiliate of the Henry Jackson Society. (laughs) So just bizarre. That was like... That is already just such a strange combination, isn't it? He was the left winger in in that department. Um, But I I said at the time, and I kind of stand by this, Griffith was so bad, but however much... He could be the head of the Henry Jackson Society, and and, uh, (laughs) I still would have preferred Fabian Hamilton to take that role. Or, you know, like an actual left winger if one was spare. But yeah, there you go. That, as Maguire and uh, and Pogren put it, she would chart her own course on defence policy, and Lotto could sack her if she wanted. But they didn't. And I just kind of think, yeah, basically because Jeremy was just like, oh, don't. 
And I was just like, you know, such a great guy, such a lo- lovely human being. But um, this, this is a time, I think, when a hard stance needed to have been taken. And John McDonnell, as we've discussed, wasn't going to deliver that stance. Uh, so really kind of came down. Yeah, he wasn't going to be like saying to Corbyn, no, we need to go harder on these right wing fucks. So that was really down to Corbyn to make the decision. Uh, and he didn't. But I don't, I don't want to get into blaming Jeremy because, you know, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. I'm calling him Jeremy just as a mark of how much I love him and to piss off Nick Cohen. Yeah. Always a good motivation for anything in life, really. <laughs> yeah. We're probably moving on now to sort of a alleged tension between John McDonnell and Diane Abbott. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was uh, reignited like literally during our, our first recording session earlier in the week when Diane Abbott put a tweet up in response to something that was basically alluding to, I suppose, John McDonnell being difficult to work with or going into business for himself or something like that, was kind of referencing his historic fallout when he was effectively Ken Livingston's deputy in in the old GLC. And it was was surprising in a way, although there's long been rumours that they're not particularly close apart from as a political necessity. No, I mean, I've heard that they literally never spoke to each other before mm. they, like, got to... Presumably, like, they had to speak a bit yeah. in the course of supporting Corbyn. Yeah. And then when they got together to put it, push him into a more pro-EU position. But yeah. before that, like, I literally think, from what I've heard, they are not, like, fans of each other. No. And if you want if you want an example of, like, McDonnell and Abbott having very different ideas of what course the left should pursue, just look at the fact they both ran for the leadership in 2010. Yeah. And that that could be where part of that has come from as well. Um, if, if one of them thought it was their turn and the other should stand aside sort of thing. Yeah, I think maybe McDonald thought that he could build on what he did in 2007, but I think Diane thought, well, this is someone else's turn now, uh, mine specifically. Uh, and the fact that he kind of... I think McDonald almost like, well, Abbott got more support than him. I think partly in, because, like, David Miliband's supporters lent her votes to, to get on the ballot for, in the name of diversity. But I think partly, basically, like, she thought, she might may have like, resented, like, I kind of was, my campaign had more momentum and Joel McDonnell was like, nah, nah, I'm the man for the job. Uh, yeah. And I think in retrospect, like, I was a bit confused and trying to pass it when we last talked. But I've, like, I've ruminated on this Diane Abbott tweet the other night. And I think what she was saying there is that basically McDonnell, when he thinks he's right, he's going to go out and say it and go over the heads of whoever... Presses on without, yeah, without thinking of the wider impact. Be it Ken Livingston, Diane Abbott or or Jeremy Corbyn, he he will chart his own course, as uh, Maguire and Pogram said about Nia Griffith. Yeah, <laughs> in, a, in a slightly less sinister way than than the aggressive, it has to be said. Um, uh, yeah, even when, yeah, I, even yeah, when I disagree with John, like I think it probably is like his sincerely held views or his sincerely held strategy. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot more to respect about him. Unlike yeah. Neil Griffith, his left-wing yeah. reputation is uh, pretty formidable, you know? Yeah, it looks like there's going to be uh, an authorised biography of, of Diane Abbott finally being written. Um, yes. And I would hope at some point she'll she'll write one herself as well. You know, although she's obviously approved this one that's coming out. Is this on Biteback? Is it really on Biteback Publishing? I'm sure I could have sworn it was, um, because I remember just being like, right, that's uh, some good, some bad sort of scenario. I've got really got a feeling it is. Um, yes. Critical support for yeah. Potato Man Ian Dale. Thebookseller.com, 28th of July. Biteback Publishing has acquired an authorised biography of MP Diane Abbott by Robin Bunce and Samara Linton. It says in September, but this is... Uh, in fact, is that out? Shit, is that book out? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, no, sorry, it, it comes out in a week. It comes out oh. um, It comes out Thursday, actually. Um, and who wrote it? Robin Bunce and Samara Linton. Um, okay. Not hugely familiar. Uh, Robin Bunce is a Cambridge historian who's written a lot for the sort of centre-centre-left papers and stuff. Uh, wrote a book on Darkest Howe and focuses on black radicalism in Britain. Okay, um, yeah, he sounds like a good fit. Yeah, Samara Linton has also done a lot of work 
Uh, she's again been at the University of Cambridge. Presumably, that's how they know each other. Worked as a junior doctor, now working for the BBC. Has done uh, sort of reports into like the AME mental health in the UK and things like that. So a bit more of a an academic background, but it seems okay. like a good. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a hatchet job or a sort of rush job either. That that's good. I mean, I I was saying to you previously that it is such like a damning indictment of the British, of British politics, <laughs> of British publishing, and yeah. of our whole kind of yeah. political media ecosystem and our public debate in this country. That Jess Phillips, an inconsequential, insignificant, frankly racist MP mm. with a mere five years in Parliament, in that five years, less than it in fact, published two books on her fascinating life and career, while in her 30 plus years in Parliament, Diane Abbott, the first black woman MP, a champion of, of anti-racism and a champion of the left in Parliament for all that time, shadow home secretary, leadership candidate, candidate for mayor of London at one point, like, has not a single book either written by or dedicated to her. And th obviously this book is now coming out, it's written by other people. Fine, yeah. maybe she didn't want to write a book herself. But nobody has thought this is interesting, whereas presumably publishing companies uh, mm -hmm. went begging to, to Jess, uh, who made her yeah. name by saying nasty things about Diane Abbott. An unusually large advance for the first book in particular, Jess Phillips, you know? completely out of whack with her profile at the time even, even though she was quite good at getting like broadsheet headlines in this. It was mm. still uh it's a hell of a lot of money for the amount it sold, even though the first one did alright. I don't think the second one has done as well, but I'm not sure about that. It's it's hard to find like There's so there's somebody else who they just popped up in British politics at precisely the right time to just be a pain in the arse for the left. <laughs> if she was an asset, if she was an asset, she'd have a little bit more self-awareness to not humiliate herself with a leadership campaign. I think she is generally just a. I don't know. I think I think they were like. Yeah. It's like when Jimmy Hoffa tried to run for the leadership of the Teamsters without the mob's backing. I think at that point <laughs> they were like, yeah, she, she's fucking useless. Like, we got Kia now, the state's yes. man in the Labour Party. We don't need yeah. this idiot. So, so you know, I think maybe it was just uh, the ruthless uh, nature of uh, security services in that case, discarding yeah. those who had once been so useful to them. The page on Bite Back about this book is quite funny because it's got a little section of reviews and it's like two effusive quotes from, from Dawn Butler and from Bell Ribeiro Addy basically saying, Diane Abbott's great and this is a really good, well-researched book, you should read it, um, both of them saying mm. that. And then there's a little button under it that says show more and if you click it, there's like a third very similar quote from Jeremy Corbyn, but they've hidden it away <laughs> so you've got to click it to see it. Ah, oh, bite back. There's what? literally three reviews and the third one is hidden just because it's Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> it's like, surely you want the review of like, no no disrespect to Bell and Dawn, but like Jeremy Corbyn is really famous. <laughs> like, I know a lot of people don't like it. Just, just but, list but... the three of them. They're all relevant and enthusiastic quotes from people who know her really well. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all right, since we've been, I know we keep kind of circling there and back. We're talking about books at the moment. Uh, yeah. Diane Abbott's book, I guess I'll just conclude with talking about the book on her. I think that the fact that she it's authorised means she'll be interviewed extensively for it. And that means that she'll be able to put forth her side of the story and maybe expand yes. on what she was saying about John McDonnell. Um, you know, which was, you know, he kind of fell out with Ken Livingston for the same reasons he did with Corbyn. Yeah. So, uh, I I was just saying, while we are talking about spooks and <laughs> and so on... Like, it's like every episode, come on. <laughs> I, was, I, I was just kind of, like, just left, like, so angry reading certain parts of this book about... You know, I didn't name any names directly earlier when I was saying certain people are momentum or whatever. But, you know, there's a, there's, of the people who get, who spoke to the authors on the record, one of them is the detestable Michael Chesson. And he's uh, he's just in there at one point like, it was too much. We just had to speak out this treatment from Lotto. And it's like, 
right so do you, you know ordinary people on the left we were like can you sack near griffith and like we didn't have this lotto weren't just like we couldn't just call them and they'd change their fucking position but michael obviously they should have been at his beck and call they should have done everything for him like just the entitlement <laughs> of the man's quotes in this book just dripping off them yeah i despise him honestly like he actually he went out every day and campaigned against the labor line and then tries to say are you saying that i am disloyal or something like I, I, it was hilarious i saw someone i think it was uh, zoe gardner arguing with jude in uh, late tw- late 2016 jude had said something disparaging about chesham and zoe gardner responded oh, michael chesham has nothing to do with the people's vote campaign or anything like that and of course you've got in here about john stolliday one of those ultra blairite pieces of shit who used to work at Labour HQ rat fucking the left and then moved on to rat fuck the left from the outside from the People's Vote campaign and it's like Stolliday never thought that he would be grateful to Chesham and so on but he was and I bet he literally said to them in an interview like hence they named him uh, mm. in that instead of just saying the People's Vote lot were grateful to Chesham I bet he literally said to them you know I never had much time for that Michael Chesham but he won me over I I really think that these people, and this doesn't apply to everyone who, like, has a long history, an impressive history of being on the left and has campaigned for left-wing causes, and you can give them the benefit of the doubt, who adopted a more pro-E position. Like Diane Abbott, for example. I'm not talking about her, but people like Chesson, people like Paul Mason, people like Laura Parker. Like, they're just fucking vampires who sank their teeth into the left and sucked out its lifeblood. I mean, if the security service didn't have these people in their employ they missed a fucking trick these people should be reviled by socialists for the rest of time for destroying the chances of a left government splintering the solidarity of our movement and frankly condemning britain to the most unapologetically conservative vision of a departure from the eu imaginable so like and just on every level that this book left out like just confirmed by hatred of these people uh whilst i still love john mcdonnell in a lot of ways like uh especially his concessions to this movement uh really frustrated me so we always say uh you know it's the people's vote it's just a front for all these blairites but it was you know i didn't even realize at the time it was literally run by like the, the old tony blair leader's office you know it was literally fucking run by alistair campbell and peter mandelson they weren't just like people who were involved they weren't just like on the board they were these were the fucking guys you know <laughs> these were the engine so just like the fact that people like chesham dedicated every day dedicated their professional lives to working for effectively this campaign utter contempt for them and that's not even getting into i never saw chesham openly endorse keir starmer <laughs> so like give him a bit he, he of credit did his on usual that. thing he pissed and moaned about the left for like two-thirds of the leadership campaign and it was kind of implied he, he thought starmer or nandy would be better uh, and he was talking about how the left need to face up to why we're unpopular and here's all the faults with the left campaign and then at the end of it, like, the second anyone was a bit snide about him, he's like, what the fuck do you want from me? I voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey, even though her campaign <laughs> was shit. He would have uh, voted There's no one on the left more than me, you yeah. know? Yeah, I, I, I honestly think if Clive was, was on the ballot, he would have backed him, but... um, He probably fucking wrote in, like, he, he can't do it because of an electronic voting system, but he probably still managed to fucking write in Clive Lewis somehow. I, I I mean I've gone off script here because yeah, I really we've gone like, quite a lot off script, but Chesson's a but cunt. but I kind of <laughs> didn't address this stuff properly when we were talking before. But mm. I really just want to like spare a special thank you to uh, to Paul Mason and Tom Cabassi and Laura Parker for literally during Labour's general election campaign knuckling down with arch Blairite Morgan McSweeney and arch unreconstructed Labour right winger Matt Pound hunkering down on gifting the Labour Party back to the right. These utter fucking clowns, they knew what they were doing. And then kicking off in, in at least one case now because they've uh, apparently, allegedly, because they're not getting a job out of it. Yeah, well, Cat Fletcher's got a job. Uh, oh, yeah, some, some people have got jobs out of it. Described Mason... by one former lotto aide as one of the most unpleasant people I've ever worked with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> described by another as just like a, a, a political weather vane, someone without particularly strong principles. Of course, um, 
it, what, what's interesting is Simon Fletcher, the other Fletcher, is yeah. working for for Kira. Uh, well, no, he's not. He didn't get a job, but he. <laughs> I think he. What he did, he worked for Kira. In the Stars. chat for Simon Fletcher. He, yeah, he did work um, for uh, Keir Starmer's campaign. So did Paul Mason as well. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Got, yeah. He got Paul... some work out of it, but not what unofficial he was advisor. For. But it's, it's interesting, you know, what because he he very much didn't let on or even imply that he was actually working for Keir Starmer during the campaign, and yeah. then he, he sort of just dropped that as an aside, like about the same time he did that Spectator article recently, and it's like, yeah. was he actually officially part of the Keir Starmer campaign at the exact point in time he was doing those absolutely horrendous anti-Catholic smears aimed at Rebecca Long-Bailey? You need outriders, you know? You need someone <laughs> who... It's like, you, know... you need someone to accuse your opponent of taking secret orders from the Pope. That's just a normal well... part of regular political campaigning. And you're not being realistic if you don't expect that sort of thing. The spotless Keir Starmer would never engage in such scurrilous activities, but, you know, it, obviously that would f- completely fly in the face of his kinder, gentler politics. But, you know, Ian Lavery has told this anecdote about how Jeremy Corbyn would refuse to get down in the gutter, and Lavery would say to him, oh, can I get down in the gutter for you, Jeremy? And, and I think maybe Paul Mason occupied somewhat of that role for Starmer, although Starmer yes. did also have the entire right uh, other than the unreconstructed uh, yeah, Philipsite yeah. weirdos, uh, you know, also down in the gutter for him. So, yeah, I, I, I just think it's fascinating that these people who are supposedly left wingers turned up to the Starmer kitchen cabinet and they saw Morgan McSweeney there who ran Liz Kendall's 2015 campaign and they didn't think, hmm, something's a bit off here. They were just like, yes, this is left, but a different kind of left. <laughs> so, yeah. so, honestly, like, uh, charlatans and, and, and fools. <laughs> yeah. S- swindlers and thieves, as, as Mike Gates would say. And then on on the subject of books, obviously, and with us having already discussed how he's covered in uh, this particular book of Left Out, we were talking as well about Seamus Milne allegedly having been keeping a diary with uh, extensive notes. Um, yeah. With, with plans at some point, we don't know when, to, to sort of get his side of the story across. Um, yeah. We, we've said before, but it's, it's always worth reiterating. Definitely looking forward to that. The guy. Yeah. Has, some he has some ability and is one of the people that's probably done the least to try and put his side across of any of the the regularly named parties on anywhere on the left really he's just kind of stayed quiet and soaked up all the criticism i did speculate that maybe he has uh he did speak anonymously uh off the record for this mm-hmm. book because there's okay. frequently bits where it's like Seamus Milne's critics said that Milne's uh anti-Zionism anti-Zionism had always crossed the line into anti-Semitism however this article from Seamus Milne showed that, that he had in fact frequently written about Zionism uh, uh, the dangers of anti-Zionism slipping into anti-Semitism well there's another bit which is like Mike Gapes, it doesn't literally say Mike Gapes, but like Mike <laughs> Gapes and co accused Milne of being an apologist for Putin but but Milne had frequently criticised the way in which Putin governs Russia. So I mean there is actually in a lot of the case they kind of dispel some of these rumors some of the the kind of conspiratorial thinking about milne mm-hmm. um and and this book like like we've said before it is kind of studiously uh it tries not to take any one particular side but milne's side is in there but yeah. i really do hope that the full story because like you know it would just simply be his view of the corbin years would be very different it would have different kind of defining moments it would have a different yeah. start and a different finish uh you know it it would be like perceived in a whole different way to the the, the kind of the way that these guys perceived it from the outside mm-hmm. um he'd also know as well he's not going to sell many books to anyone that isn't on the left so he's not going to worry about trying to trying to appease them so much 
Well, yeah, and I said, you know, Owen Jones's book is, uh, by all accounts, by which I mean the accounts of George Eaton and John Harris, who have both reviewed <laughs> both friends it. of the show, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, one maybe. John Harris, of course, my close personal friend uh, who cameoed on Gapecast. <laughs> one has appeared on the show. The other one has, has technically appeared on the show from, from us ripping on him. Well, <laughs> George Eaton's appeared in that context as well, to be fair. <laughs> Maybe I'll stick in the John Harris Gapecast bit where he's like, when I'm at the EDL march talking to the lads with the swastika tattoos, <laughs> they always tell me that there's far too many non-white people. <laughs> <laughs> Rumours that a new political supergroup was set to be formed resulted in great excitement from the fine political commentators the UK has. A thousand think pieces bloomed, and I was fortunate enough to gain an interview with one of the UK's premier political experts and have a white working class think. John Harris, thank you for giving me this interview. It's a pleasure, Timothy. Jimothy? Timothy. Blair, Clinton and Gates could be the biggest supergroup since my plan to combine the guy from Oasis, the guy from Blur and the other guy from Oasis, with me on the drums and also being the frontman. The white working class would have loved it. That's what Labour needs to focus on. Britpop groups from the 90s, not Palestine and trans rights. Quite right. Going back to the music... Yeah, the market traders in Grimsby don't want any mosques in their town. Uh, and Labour need to pay attention to their genuine concerns if they're ever going to win back these constituencies. Back to the music. When I'm in Blackpool and finding the loudest, proudest, most racist people I can, they all tell me that there's far too many non-white people. Labour needs to be much more racist if they ever want to attract these people I back. I think we're done here. I'm as left-wing as they come. But when I'm in the EDL marches, interviewing the men with the swastika tattoos on their faces, they tell me the black... Sadly, the envisioned supergroup never came to pass, due to what the insurance claim describes as a malicious act of God. You <laughs> should do a version of that where he does that, but all he does is, is, is bumps into loads of other journalists who've got loads of right-wing mates, like Tom Peck and that, with his ECL pals, and none oh, of yeah. them realise that it's just them there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This ruddy-faced lad hates the immigrants. What does he have to say? And it's just like, yeah, the sketch writer for the Independent or something. <laughs> yeah, they're all bastards. I come up here frequently, and all he'll tell me this. But Harrison Eaton... They both say that Owen's book is very overtly anti-Milne. It's very like... And then he's quoted in that fucking uh, interview with George Eaton where, where Owen, Owen's just like, ah, he's, he was used to writing a newspaper column. Like, <laughs> you know, he, doesn't, he doesn't know anything about running a major party. It's like, oh, let's just go <laughs> to, like... Let, uh, we should have got one of the people on the left who does have experience running a major party. Oh, wait! <laughs> <laughs> Literally, we, let, should we go back to, like, uh, George Lansbury's uh, spin doctor or something? <laughs> it's bizarre. Like, I, I think that people like Owen Jones, like, because he says himself he never wanted a job with Corbyn, and he was offered one at one point, uh, and he turned it down. But, you know, I think basically he was of the view that Corbyn should have got in someone like... Uh, I think Kevin Maguire maybe was also offered the job uh, early well, he on was before. Sh maybe shortlisted or something like that. Yeah, it, it's definitely a name that's been heard about. Before Milne uh, came into the picture. But I mean, like, he's basically a peer of Seamus Milne. He's just got more right wing politics and is slightly more prominent because he's like one of the main guys at the Mirror. And he does the paper review quite a bit, I suppose, which Milne probably can't be asked to. But. At the end of the day, like, he just didn't share the vision of politics that, that Seamus Milne had. No. And essentially, for all this talk about Milne being, like, one of the, you know, something dragging down the project, I really think that he was quite necessary to the project. And I know that there are people, de like, intimately involved in the project who agree with that. They just haven't got round to writing their book yet. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, one of them being Seamus Milne himself <laughs> would be good. Yeah, I was. I, I just think it would be really good, obviously, to to, to counterbalance his, his old friend and ally Tony Benn's diaries and just have the his true story of it being just page after page of fuck Hillary Benn. Hillary Benn's a cunt. I hate Hillary <laughs> Benn. <you know? laughs> yeah. Yeah.
<laughs> of course, well, that, that's what I want, really. I don't want Owen Jones prostrating himself but before the right and trying to be fair in his critique of the left when, like, I mean, George Eaton was fair to him, but John Harris, if you saw his review, he was not fair to Owen. He was just like, why didn't he mention the Panorama documentary? It's like, because he's not an idiot, mate, and he yeah. knew, knew that he'd been sold a fucking pup with that load of dishonest shit. <laughs> like, for, like, give Owen some credit. Like, he does have basic critical faculties to not be, like, taken in by some stupid documentary where they show footage of Jenny Formby and then play some, like, pants pissing horror music. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, I don't want that. Whilst it, there may be some virtues to his book like that, I don't want him, like, uh, you know, trying to be like, oh, yeah, I can be critical of the left. Please be nice to me. And again, you know, the same thing kind of like Maguire and Pogrand... If they want to torch the movement down, maybe they should have gone all out in doing it. But what I really want is something, you know, you know where it stands. I want a full-throated defence from Seamus Milne of what he was up to. I want his account of the day-by-day, the lies, the smears, the swindlers, the thieves, (laughs) the MI5 interference. Or I want a vicious right-wing tract that could well have been written by MI5. Uh, except with more bizarre rambling about milk, cake, the seed that grows from an acorn into a big tree, uh, <laughs> and unhinged bollocks about Russia. Yeah. Which, of course, Mike Gates would provide. That's the, the big two books we're looking for, really, isn't it? The, the, the sort of twin pillars of the, the left Twitter uh, publishing market. Absolutely, um. and like and like you said to me, I mean, I I will refuse to read any Gapes book that is ghost written. I yeah, it directly in the man's voice. It's got to be pure strain Gapes, you know. It can't it can't be watered down. It's, it's got to sound as much like him as for Donald Trump milk speech. Yeah, pure a hundred percent unfiltered Gapes. <laughs> so last time, I, I, I want I want him to call it wide open. A life in politics or something like that. <laughs> well, your other idea was that, like, Gapes moves into TV presenting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just, that would just be a brilliant idea in, in general. My other other idea for him was that he works in, like, a children's theme park that's themed, you know, these ones they have in Europe that's, like, themed around, like, fairy tale creatures and all this, and just having been like a... <laughs> A little goblin. What, he plays for Smurfs. He, no, he, he basically he'd be like a, li- a, a mischievous little goblin, sort of sulking around and scaring <laughs> the children, and then whatever their mascot is can, can come and, and mock him. Uh, I think he'd make a good living out of that. I might not do it justice, so like, tell everyone your TV show idea for Gates. What was my TV show idea for Gates? <laughs> Hang like, on. It's it's where he does a Portillo-style show. Oh yes, tra- yeah, yeah. Sorry, he yeah. travels the yeah, railways yeah, yeah, of yeah, Russia. Yeah. So um, yeah, obviously there's there's a, there's a market for shows where people who are either likable, like Michael Palin, or, or not particularly <laughs> likable but capable of being kind of smugly charming for half an hour, like Michael Portillo, where they just travel around by rail um, or by other transport, and, and that's a nice sort of travel show, isn't it? I want to see yeah. Mike Gapes specifically doing that around Russia and around like former Soviet countries as well uh, in Eastern <laughs> Europe. Um, just taking these big long railway journeys, beautiful scenery. After the first five minutes of it being him like trying to take it seriously, you know, oh look, you know, look at these gorgeous views out of the window. You know, there's, there's great history to this town. And I'm going to tell you about it. And then by about like five minutes into it. He's just evolved into ranting and raving and, and Stalin destroying everything. These fucking Bolsheviks. Seamus Mill. Mill has ruined this once great railway. <laughs> like the railway conductor comes up and yeah. he's just like, ah, Hashmikov and Sankiev. Even it's just one person. He's like seeing double because he's yeah. so milk adult. He's like, Hashmikov and Zangiev, come to get your revenge. And he forgets that he's already murdered them. Like the cameraman tries to be yeah. like, Mike, they're already dead. And he's like, their soul's still dancing. And he stabs <laughs> them repeatedly. Like it's the fucking yeah. uh, Russian birth seen in Eastern Promises. (laughs) What's the weather like in St. Petersburg, Victor? And they just like point out the window and like, look, we're just pulling into St. Petersburg. Mike, have a look. (laughs) (laughs) You're there now. 
you don't need to ask random people on Twitter anymore. <laughs> Obviously, the Milne and Gapes books are just the two I'm, I'm really looking forward to, and I, I really, really hope that they end up somehow, you know, they, they could come out in three months, they could come out in 20 years, but I really hope that whenever it happens, they, they come out on the same day. Because yeah. essentially it would be like a sort of micro version of the Blur versus Oasis, uh, Wonderwall versus Country House, but specifically for like listeners of this podcast, there'll be like two two thousand left Twitter nerds around Britain really hyped up for it, and then neither of them will actually get anywhere in the bestsellers list or anything like that. But there'll be like a very proper... big mansion in Ilford. <laughs> And yet he claims to be an anti-capitalist. <laughs> you know what I always said? You've got to roll with it, Richard. Take your time. <laughs> say what you say, especially if it is about the milk. <laughs> yes. So I suppose let's move on to a slightly graver part of uh, this conversation from Michael Gapes. I think some of the depiction of the Labour anti-Semitism scandal or, or protracted issues uh, in this book are slightly disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the whole thing is like, so it's kind of all about how Corbyn handled the stuff in 2018 badly. But I, I mean, I'm very much of a view that there was no way he could have handled it well. Like, essentially, if you want to go back and look for Corbyn, like, apologising for anti-Semitism of the Labour Party, you can find it in 2018. If you want to find get him declaring that he is uh, a militant opponent of anti-Semitism, you can find that in 2018. I mean, he said a lot, um, and the party did a lot institutionally. Uh, I just think that whatever... The party would have done and what Corbyn would have done personally there would have been a new article in the Sunday Times every well Sunday drawing on something in his or somebody close to him's past however tenuous to to deepen the crisis seek to portray him and those around him as anti-semitic and cause further hurt and distrust between the Labour Party and the Jewish community mm-hmm. yeah yeah as you say you know you can tell sort of how much effort there was to keep a steady stream of stories going in that actually one of the ones that, that did land for broadly good reasoning in, in that, that fucking mural, right, which is obviously, and in this case, rightly governing that book. Um, yeah. That had been raised, and in fact, the book actually alludes to it, doesn't say the specifics of how, but that had been raised like about a year before it actually went massive and, and, and caused problems for Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, actually, it was 2015. 2015, uh, right, people so... On, people on the right had brought it up. So about two, two and a half years or something like that then, okay. Um, but the only person that had actually bothered to sort of write down and explain what was a big deal was fucking Tool Dunn, an absolute obnoxious tosser on Twitter, who, on the medium you put it on, it's mainly just, like, him sulking about arguments he's lost with his mother, who's more left-wing than him, and, like, <laughs> long... 2,000 word rebuttals to like some throwaway opinion she said you can tell he realised it was serious because he actually took the effort to explain it rather than just being a smug wanker but everyone ignored it because he was exactly the sort of person who spends every day like ah Corbyn once sat two rows away from this guy at the meal after a rally where this guy two years later then said something absolutely appalling at a completely different event and there was something like that every day. If you want a good example of Twildun's writing on Medium, I'd refer no one wants that. Uh, to his his strenuous efforts to effectively discredit the anti-apartheid movement retrospectively. Admittedly, I think <laughs> that's going to be a hard task, even for, for political titans like Twildun and Rachel Riley to uh, retrospectively tarnish uh, the, the heroic struggle mm-hmm. to end apartheid in South Africa. But he certainly did his bit, which was all just kind of his stuff about, oh, Gorbin associated with the unacceptable side of anti-apartheid. And, it, and it's basically this, this thing, like, because Corbyn was on the right side of that argument, for years, people whose 
whose political faves maybe weren't so vocal on it have resented that and they've tried to say oh jeremy corbyn didn't single-handedly end apartheid in south africa that was the first stage of that argument and it's like yes no he didn't neither did nelson mandela nobody single-handedly ended we don't have that view of the world like you do where we can just chalk everything up to a great man but i mean fucking hell wait until he finds out what umkanto wishes we were up to you know (laughs) 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 Yeah, and, uh, and of course, oh, no, they were they were terrible. Like, they held the, the anti-apartheid movement back. I'm very smart. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn was just out there necklacing people. <laughs> <laughs> he just had fucking tires. Him and Winnie were on the front lines. <laughs> Mandela consciously said, "Jeremy Corbyn has gone too far for me." This was before he learned about apartheid as well. He was just doing it for the sheer fun of it. But yeah, yeah. So basically, that that, that they sort of they moved on. That, that that their first argument was that oh, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't even that important in the anti-apartheid movement, which is like, yeah, no shit. Not really claimed like, to be, is he? He was a, no. He of course he hasn't. He was a white guy from England who had His like point a small is, amount of political yeah. capital that he used for this yeah. cause, as he did with many other liberation causes. Then they moved on to the thing of like, oh, he was associated with the communists in the movement. You know, he was necklacing people. But, oh, did you know this guy did the Warrington bombing? blah 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 that's obviously a side issue but basically yeah it shows how these people have just been on moving on a trajectory to the right and sorry i've gone on so long with this but it <laughs> but just the way that their argument moved from corbyn was not significant in uh the anti-apartheid movement to actually the anti-apartheid campaigning he did was bad you know, <laughs> to yeah. a standard right-wing guilt by association. We can't let the anti-racists win because of all these communists and agitators in the movement. It's just ridiculous that gets from. But yeah, you're right. Twill Dunn, I think, was mate was the first person to go in extensively on the Corbyn mural thing. But I should say again, even that that was something that happened in 2012, and it was just produced. You know, it was the first of many things. I think. There was, there was a kind of, I don't know if the, the quote-unquote discovery of the mural kind of created a precedent for it, but after that, there was a series of stories every week, and it would be like, Corbyn said this to some guy who was heckling him at a pro-Palestine event. Just, it, you know, just those very, very normal and non-racist, non-right-wing people who just go along to a Palestine event to monitor the extremists, you know? Those normal people who aren't there because yeah. they sympathise with the Palestinians, but because they have this, like, bug-eyed, paranoid view of anyone involved in radical politics or who they see as supportive of yeah, Islamism. And there, and there was more stuff. And, and I think possibly the most glaring of these is also the thing that gets the most disingenuous coverage in the book, which is the so-called Reefgate yes. thing. I think a real confected scandal... Um, and this book totally uncritically reports what I think was about as honest a story from the Daily Mail as the one they wrote about us. So what they state in the book is on 10th of August, photos from 2014 emerged that appear. And, you know, that just t- photos from 2014 emerged. A right wing paper dug them up and printed them to be inflammatory that appeared to show Corbyn laying a wreath at a Tunis cemetery for dead members of the Palestinian terrorist group Black September. So this is already a lie. Who had been responsible, I suppose they said that appeared to show, who had been responsible for the murder of the Israeli Olympic team in Munich in 1972. Despite the pictures showing him carrying a floral tribute the size of his own torso, two days later Corbyn insisted, to much ridicule, that he had been present but not involved. But Luciana Berger gave his explanation short shrift. Being present is the same as being involved, she said. When I attend a memorial, my presence alone, whether I carry a wreath or not, demonstrates my association and support. There can also never be a fitting memorial for terrorists, she added. Where is the apology? I've said, you know, I just think that's so reductive. There can also never be a fitting memorial for terrorists. It's always such a loaded question, who gets to be defined as a terrorist? Who ultimately, as a, you know, a freedom fighter, or somebody who was murdered quite brutally, which in this case applies to the people that Berger here was branding terrorists. So essentially what happened is that in 1985, the PLO headquarters was bombed. It was bombed by Israel, 
and for some reason there was a lot of confusion about the amount of people were killed but it was between 47 and 71 people i don't know how many were injured in addition to that but i think we can probably assume that of those up to 71 people not all of them were members of black september not all of them were involved in the murder of the israeli olympics team and probably the majority of them were innocent. Uh, you could say, well, they're PLO, they're terrorists, but that is an obscene thing to say. The PLO has been recognised by the British government as a legitimate political organisation since 1993. And this attack was, after some, I have to say, equivocation and hesitation, condemned by Ronald Reagan. So, I mean... <laughs> Luciana Berger here with this kind of bellicose rhetoric was essentially taking a position to the right of Ronald Reagan and I think engaging in anti-Palestinian racism and Pogrind and Maguire have reported this so dishonestly. Corbyn was at a PLO ceremony at a commemoration of the Israeli bombing of the PLO HQ not at a memorial service for terrorists from Black September. There were two people's graves there who were alleged to have been involved in Black September, as were various people in the PLO. I imagine those allegations flew quite frequently in the face of people who were involved in Palestinian liberation movement. Mm. The UK government recognised the PLO in 1993, so I think the idea that going to a PLO memorial means you support terrorism is quite frankly anti-Palestinian racism. So, I mean, it's just, just an obscene portrayal of what, what is going on here. Corbyn was there paying tribute to people unjustly murdered in a strike that the Reagan administration said cannot be condoned. Just, just, just lost all perspective, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, as you said right at the start of that, it's such a reductive way of looking at the, the whole situation. And yeah, it's just treated as completely uncontroversial. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was no pushback on that, was no. there? <laughs> Something which I think is really insidious. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes back to, like, you can say there were, you know, Labour shot themselves in the foot with stuff like the IHRA definition, mm. um, that, that with, with, with stuff in, in the anti-Semitism scandal, but there was a genuine case, I think, and there still is, and especially in retrospect, the rights of Palestinians and the people's capacity in this country to support the rights of the Palestinians have been infringed, and that this conversation has not pushed this in a better direction for palestinians i frankly i don't think it has for jewish people and israelis either but you know it's just really really obscene i think so like i i guess finally let's just return briefly to the issue of like the mcdonnell and corbyn divide uh yeah. because this was kind of like a it's of more interest from the divide between married couple john ashworth and emily oldno but i think also this was as someone deeply in emotionally invested in the Corbyn project. You know, this was the most upsetting thing about the book to me, seeing them at each other's throats, not talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they, they certainly, uh, before and in the early stages of the, the Corbyn leadership, gave a uh, sort of genuine impression of having been long-term friends and allies. So without knowing the exact truth of things, obviously, depends what sources these things have come from, and it could be the case it's a little bit exaggerated. I think it's relayed and left out, but MacDonald would say, oh, Jeremy's my best friend in politics, and MacDonald's wife, I think Cynthia, would be like, uh, no, John, he's your only friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... So that, you know, we mentioned earlier what an abrasive presence John McDonnell was considered by other people in the PLP including other people on the left like Diane Abbott yeah. um, you know fell out with Ken Livingston fell out with most people apart from Jeremy there is obviously you know like the headline for George Eaton Owen Jones interview was you know I begged McDonnell to run for leader and I, you know I think it, I think there is a case to be made that McDonnell should have run for leader in 2019 after Labour lost the election yeah. obviously like he says oh I think McDonnell is Labour's great lost leader but you know even Owen Jones uh, a hardcore McDonnellite in my view knows that that would never have happened because McDonnell was so unpopular with Labour MPs they wouldn't have got him on the ballot no, they would, they would like, literally have uh, been 
lobbying other MPs not to nominate him. Like, the right would have gone into, like, full-on spin mode. Like, they all would have joined together to keep McDonnell out, whereas they weren't as threatened by Corbyn. We got beautiful moments like Neil Coyle nominating Jeremy Corbyn for the banter because he thought he had no chance of winning. If it had been John McDonnell, I think people like that would have just been like, no, fuck off, don't like it, you know? Yeah, they, they never would. But, I mean, I suppose over time, I mean by left out telling by the end um you know maybe like the majority of the plp saw mcdonald as more of an ally than corbyn's office did i don't know if that's fair but they certainly saw him as uh, as increasingly an ally and i think that's sad it feels like mcdonald kind of got co-opted by parliamentarianism Tom Gann's phrase for this, and like with the caveat that Tom is a big admirer of McDonnell, is the NGOization of John McDonnell. It felt like there maybe was, towards the end of Corbynism, there maybe was more in common with him and the kind of like future Starmerite soft left, like Kibassi or Laura Parker mm. or whatever. Very pro EU, very uh, kind of like wonkish on the policy. While the policies were still good, it yeah, it was that kind of like wonkish thing. Again, Andrew Fisher is much like this. A very, uh, I think, on point criticism of Labour's 2019 manifesto from the authors of Left Out is that if it feels like it was written entirely by a policy wonk that's because it was <laughs> you know andrew fisher wasn't letting seamus milne like make it slightly more digestible or anything um and and so him and mcdonald you know very smart guys on policy radical economic reforms and everything but i don't know mcdonald it was almost reform became the operative word mcdonald kind of thought you can manage the plp we can manage the remain movement that is literally run by peter mandelson and alistair campbell it's just very distressing reading about the disconnect between his office and corbyn's office while he was having weekly meetings with alistair campbell you know that yeah. clearly something's gone wrong there if you're not communicating properly with jeremy corbyn but you and alistair campbell are kind of breezing through your your personal and professional relationships yes one of them whatever the source of disagreements has more power to achieve left-wing outcomes which i'm sure john mcdonald generally wants even if i disagree with his some of his more recent ways of, go, of going about that but you know yeah you've lost a bit of perspective if, if can't see that and think that Alistair Campbell specifically or, or people of that nature were allying with on that level. Yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose, so McDonnell always comes out whenever there's newspaper stories about a kind of split between him and Corbyn. He always comes out and says they're not true. It's the Murdoch gutter press reporting again. The thing is, for the last, the one that he said came from the Murdoch gutter press was a, an on-the-record interview with Kerry Murphy. Admittedly, it was in the Murdoch gutter press. It was in the Times. Uh, I think, I believe, the work of Pogrand and Maguire. But uh, it really wasn't like it was just coming out of nowhere. It was a first-hand account of somebody on the left. And, you know, I, I understand why he comes out and feels the need to spin against the stuff when they say he and Corbyn are divided. He probably feels like it's not the business of people on the right, especially the media, if he and Corbyn disagree on something. But the thing is that when he would disagree with Corbyn publicly, it would become the business of the right-wing press. Yeah. A lot of the agreement, yeah, not all of it, but a lot of the agreement would not necessarily be in, in good faith. Yeah, and and so it's just the kind of thing of, like, I think Owen Jones's book is going to portray McDonnell as heroically striving to get Labour into power, while Corbyn kind of, like, was just difficult and couldn't be asked or whatever, and Seamus Milne, blah, 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 Mr. Seamus Milne! <laughs> it's like, it's funny, Owen Jones always was, like, unfairly maligned Seamus Milne, and now it's time to get his side of the story out. He's like, it was all Seamus Milne's fault. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if the unfairly maligned Seamus Milne was just trying to, like, keep him on side. That's all very well if he, if he wants to portray McDonnell as the person who was, like, going above and beyond, like, the port of call to try and form a Labour government. Be that keeping the PLP on side, keeping the right-wing media on side, keeping the organised Remain movement on side. But we didn't game the world. And you could see the soul of our movement getting chipped away 
every time he'd sit down with Alistair Campbell and tell him, you should be let back into the party. And by the way, Tony Blair is not a war criminal. It's a matter of 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 absolute principle, I think, that you, you can't compromise on that kind of thing. And I, I don't buy the defence made by Pogren and Maguire for McDonnell, which was the liberation struggle he cared about, was the liberation of the British working class. Well, A, they weren't liberated. Uh, you know, we lost. The concessions didn't do the trick. And B, that's not my view of the world. That's not what I support socialism for. That's not what I'm on the left for. The, the idea that there is a binary choice between uh, liberating those at home and those abroad. That's totally reactionary, I think. Um, and, you know, the fact that he, he kind of thought, again, something that I know Owen Jones thought, which was that if Labour just kind of didn't talk about foreign policy, just kind of kept Corbyn's... Uh, view of the world like in the fucking attic that Labour could just focus on the domestic issues uh, and 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 win like that was a failed strategy that didn't work at all people had no idea what Corbyn's view of the world was because people who knew him best like John McDonnell couldn't just be asked to go out there and say this is what Jeremy thinks about Palestine this is what Jeremy thinks about Russia you know, I, I think it was a real Achilles heel for the project, the fact that there was no, like, support for Corbyn in those areas. You know, so I say thank God for Seamus Milne. At least he had someone around him who actually did understand and could try and articulate his view of the world. The Salisbury thing, which all the Jonesite, McDonaldite, Fisherite lot want to make a huge deal out of, I think Seamus Milne and Corbyn probably thought it was going to be a moment where they could shift the dial. I think they thought that it was going to be like the Chatham House speech during the 2017 election when they took a bold stance and it paid off. They took a different... This was around the time Corbyn, when they accused him of being a Russian spy, he did that great video. He was like, they're scared, you know, because we represent a threat to them. He was taking a more confrontational stance at that point. And I think they thought was, you know, fuck this idea that we've just got to be like these bootlicking servants of the security services who were always trustworthy. Fuck the idea that whenever the government wants to drum up fear, we've got to get behind them like Michael Foote during the Falklands in the name of national unity. I think they thought, no, this is a new politics and we're going to try it. And though I think it was maybe a decision in good faith, John McDonnell didn't think that. And that's the NGOization of him, you know, that's the co-option of McDonnell by, uh, by, by parliamentarism, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's well said, yeah. You know, we weren't elected to form a government. We then lost control of the party. What did John and, you know, and frankly Diane as well, standing at that big people's vote rally next to Keir Starmer, do for the left? It made Keir Starmer look like the leader of the left. I feel passionately resistant to this analysis but if all Seamus Milne and um, Kerry Murphy and the bloody people who thought that Labour was going to destroy its support among the northern working classes by supporting a second referendum had just shut up and stopped trying to shift the dial on foreign policy, defend Palestinian human rights, if they'd have just like reined it in and let the grown-ups in the room handle it. You know, it co flies completely in the face of my politics, that competence, that talented at politics, that grown-ups in the room crap, you know? I love McDonnell. I love McDonnell. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's done a lot up. of great stuff. But like just saying uh, the most talented politician of his generation. Well, A, that's a shonky and reactionary uh, and, you know, frankly, uh, very conformist conception of politics and political talent. Uh, and B, where was it evidenced in the last two years? At least Jeremy and Shame are stuck by what they believe. Yep. Well... I think that's everything from our notes, everything I wanted to say. Oh, oh, let's end on a laugh. Because I don't want to end this fucking... That's I don't probably a good end. idea, yeah. yeah.
this John McDonald shit. This is fucking funny. You know, these fucking idiots went and called their new party Change UK. Obviously, people were gonna call them cuck. But uh, this is funny how just how literal this bit in the book is. Angela Smith, the day after their announcement, false news, it was on the day of their announcement, was forced to apologise after appearing to refer to people of colour as having a funny tinge on live television. Like, that's the thing of Corbyn appeared to lay a wreath for terrorists. That is true, he appeared to, but yeah. didn't actually. Angela Smith actually did refer yeah. to people of colour as having a funny tinge. On live um, TV, on like the, the, the one sweet spot where people were paying attention to a new party. That incident would later see them nicknamed in Lotto as Cuck Tinge PLC, a dig at their corporate politics, Smith's Gap, and their status, in the eyes of the online left at least, as the Cucks, or weak-willed, servile moderates of British politics. The online left vindicated again. <laughs> and that's great, because I didn't want to make a big deal of it, but I, that is totally how I view these guys. Yes, yeah, from, from day one, literally day one, because it was a hundred minutes after they formed the Angela Smith on online TV and did that. <laughs> yeah, man, I just noticed, speaking of cucks, I just saw this thing from Brian Cox, not the the good actor who supports the SNP. But, Brian uh, Cox. The, the, yeah, Brian Cox, the dickhead fucking scientist guy. I don't discuss the, my po- with the eugenicist wife. Yes, I don't discuss my politics other than to say, as I said before, I voted for all three main parties in my time: <laughs> Change UK, Spring the Party, and Renew. Fucking <laughs> 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 hell! Yeah. I- It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.